human brain is always looking for a deal. It's always looking for the most benefit for the least cost. And this is true whether you're talking about negotiating with your boss for a raise or whether you're talking about obtaining food. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Dr. Stephen Guiana, welcome back to Human OS Radio. Great to be here, Dan. You've just published a book called The Hungry Brain, Outsmarting the Instincts That Make Us Overeat. And I wanted to bring you on the show again to discuss this. So first of all, when did you start working on the book? Yeah, I started working on the book almost exactly three years ago. And I have to give you a little bit of credit for this because it was a conversation that we had that kind of sparked the whole thing, kind of set the whole thing in motion, got me thinking about taking some of the ideas that I had from my blog and actually turning it into a book. That is really great to hear because you know, you've been writing on your blog for a long time. You have a big following. And I think pulling all the big ideas together into one cohesive, contiguous piece that you can read is really valuable. I'm proud of you that you did it. And let's just dive into it. So why are we so much heavier than traditionally living cultures and even our own ancestors? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting question. And just to touch on some of the data on that, you can look at pretty much any traditionally living culture around the globe. And what I mean by traditionally living is cultures that have not been touched by industrialization of diet and lifestyle. And what you find if you look at those cultures, there's actually quite a bit of evidence on this, is that they tend to be a lot leaner than we are in modern affluent nations. And all evidence that we have indicates that this has been true for probably all of human history. So we are heavier today on average than we ever have in all of human history. And we can see that happening even in the United States if we look back far enough. If you go back to the late 1800s, what you find is that among white middle-aged men, about 1 in 17 were obese whereas today it's like 40% are obese. So there's been a very, very marked change in the prevalence of obesity over time. And by the way, I want to clarify a little bit. The reason I only share data about middle-aged white men is because that's the only data we have. But we can compare that demographic back then to that demographic today, and it does suggest a very, very striking change. So this is a huge question. Why did this happen? This is a huge question. And so many things have changed over the last 100 years, 200 years, 1000 years. Mm. And so how do we get a toehold on this? How do we start to logically dissect this problem? So what I like to do is I like to go back to a really fundamental principle of body fatness, which is calorie balance. So the number of calories entering the body versus leaving the body. And we know that since body fatness is the primary energy storage site of the body, and this has been demonstrated experimentally many times, that mm -hmm. the number of calories entering versus leaving is almost exclusive determinant of the amount of fat that you carry on your body. So that kind of gives us an entry point into thinking about this to say, hey, can we find any places where calorie intake has increased or calorie expenditure has decreased. And I think it's really not hard to demonstrate that calorie expenditure, at least on average, has decreased. In the United States 100 years ago, most jobs involved manual labor and even just doing everyday tasks involved a lot of manual labor. Right. You know, they didn't have 
washing machines. They didn't have dishwashers. A lot of people needed their own dough. They plowed their own fields. They didn't have motor vehicles, so they were walking everywhere or riding horses. You know, those are things that demand a lot more energy than the day-to-day tasks that we do today, the corresponding types of tasks. And so calorie expenditure has definitely gone down. And if we look at calorie intake in the United States, we can look back to the early 1900s, to about 1909, and the data become less and less reliable as we go back. But I think the general trends still hold. Interestingly, what you see is that in the early 1900s, calorie intake was pretty high. And then it kind of gradually goes down and down and down until the 1950s and 60s, and it stays lower until the mid-70s, and then it starts to creep up. Hmm. And then in the 80s, it goes way up and keeps going up until now, basically. And this is really interesting because the higher calorie intake that we had at the beginning of the 1900s makes sense. We were burning a lot of calories, and so we had to eat a lot of calories. That's Mm -hmm. what you would expect, right? Right. Um, And then as we began burning fewer calories over time as our lives mechanized, our calorie intake kind of went down and down and down, also as you would expect, because we need fewer calories. And over that time period, we were gaining weight, but not at a very rapid rate. We were slowly gaining weight. And then around the the late 1970s to mid-1980s, our calorie intake really started to skyrocket. And that did not correspond to any increase in physical activity. So Mm. our calorie intake went back up higher than ever, actually. But it was not met with a corresponding increase in calorie expenditure. And so basically what happened was that there was a gradual and then sudden decoupling of calorie intake from our true calorie needs. And so this is why I really focus on the calorie intake side of the equation. And again, I'm not doing this to de-emphasize physical activity or calorie expenditure. I think that's also an important part of the equation. Sure. But I think you can out-eat almost any level of physical activity. And so the question is, why were we out eating the number of calories that we needed to remain lean? Okay, so this explains the mechanism, but it doesn't explain what was driving it, except for the physical activity. So what made us eat more calories? So I think there are a variety of different ways to think about this, but what I really try to do in my book is I try to go back Mm -hmm. to first principles. I really try to get down to the very bottom of what drives an animal to eat food. And we know that the brain was shaped by natural selection, and the currency of natural selection is reproductive success. Mm -hmm. In other words, having as many offspring as you can. And a big part of having as many offspring as you can is obtaining sufficient food and particularly sufficient food energy so that you can run your body and build all the tissues that you need to build to produce offspring. And for that reason, brains evolve to generate behaviors that obtain food efficiently. And this is true of our own ancestors as well as every animal that has a brain. And so you can actually model how this works. And researchers have done this first in non-human animals using a discipline called optimal foraging theory. And so you can mathematically model basically how an animal will behave in the wild, how it will behave, what resources it will select, and why it will select them. And if you model that behavior, what you find is that the primary driver of food foraging behavior is the calorie return rate. And so what that means is, this is the equation, the value of a food item 
and thus whether it's worth pursuing, is equal to the number of calories that food item supplies minus the number of calories required to obtain it divided by time. Mm. And so that's just a very basic equation of economics that is all about maximizing value per unit time. And so it's pretty satisfying to see this universal principle that applies to animals trying to find food and applies to people trying to make money through investments. It's kind of cool to see that fundamental universal principle apply to all these things. And I want to say that calories are not the only thing animals are looking for, but when you model their behavior, that is the number one thing. And it's the single factor that explains most of their foraging behavior in a variety of omnivorous species. Okay. Yeah. And so it turns out that researchers have also modeled the behavior of human hunter-gatherers, and they've shown that it also corresponds to this same type of principle of trying to maximize the calorie return rate. And this makes sense. I mean, if you're a hunter-gatherer, you're living in a dangerous world, and you're living in a world where it's not easy to get calories. I mean, I don't know how many how many folks, you or other listeners, have tried to go out in the wild and find enough calories to eat for a day, but it's not so easy. Yeah. And these people have to build amazing skills for a lifetime to be able to do it successfully. And so you become efficient and you go after the things that are going to get you the best returns for the least amount of time and effort. So this is how the human brain is wired. The human brain is always looking for a deal. Mm. It's always looking for the most benefit for the least cost. And this is true whether you're talking about negotiating with your boss for a raise or whether you're talking about obtaining food. Mm. But the way we obtain food, all this stuff is built into our brains more intuitively than it might be if we're negotiating with our boss about salary. Mm. And so the part of the brain that regulates this economic logic is the orbitofrontal cortex and the ventromedial prefrontal cortex. And what they do is they basically collect all kinds of information Mm. about the situation in question. And it's like a pro and cons list that's partly conscious, partly Mm non-conscious. It integrates all that stuff and it says, hey, what's the most valuable thing you could be doing right now? And to get to the matter at hand, what's the most valuable food-related behavior to engage in right now? And then once it's chosen that, it sends signals to the motivational parts of your brain to say, hey, let's do this. Mm -hmm. So maybe you'd experience a craving or you would feel tempted by something or you'd feel hungry because it's integrating your energy state as well as all kinds of things about your environment. And so our brains are wired to look for good deals. And since the intuitive value of food to the brain and therefore how motivated you are to eat it has a lot to do with its calorie content as well as how easy it is to get, when high-calorie foods are readily available, hunter-gatherers will gorge on them in a way that is really spectacular. (laughs) It's striking. So I spoke with some really top-notch anthropologists during the research for my book, and Uh Kim Hill, Brian Wood, Herman Ponser. What they described to me was mind-blowing. I mean, hunter-gatherers chugging a quart of honey. Oh, my gosh. Chugging it like it's milk and eating 30 oranges in a sitting that are very similar to the ones you would buy in a grocery store. Wow. (laughs) Um, Eating, I can't remember whether it was five pounds or five kilos of meat at a single sitting. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's extreme. I don't know if I could do any of that. <laughs> yeah. I guess I could. I'm a human, but it sounds <laughs> it sounds impossible. I know it does, right? It does. But I want to try. <laughs> <laughs> Most of us don't quite do it to that extent, but they don't have limits mm. on their eating behavior. This is what all of the anthropologists told me. They don't have limits on their eating behavior. They don't need limits right. because gorging on food when it's easy to get and calorie dense yeah. is good for them. That literally helps them. It doesn't hurt them like it does for us. Yeah. It helps them get the energy they need to survive and produce offspring. And so there's no downside. Make hay when the sun's shining, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so their brains and our brains, because we descend from them, are wired to take advantage of those situations, to take advantage of great deals where the value of a food item, according to that equation I described, is very, very high. And so, mm -hmm. you know, most of us don't sit down and eat five pounds of meat, but I think we still have those impulses to eat perhaps more than is good for us when we're in those kinds of situations. Yeah. Yeah. And so our brains are really, they didn't evolve to regulate food intake on a conscious, rational level. They evolved to regulate food intake intuitively. Mm. And so all those impulses that were there in our hunter-gatherer ancestors are still there for us. And we struggle with them and we try to regulate them using our conscious, rational mind, but it's difficult and those tools are limited because our brain wasn't really designed to regulate food intake in that way. Mm -hmm. So this brings us to the fundamental problem of overeating, which is that none of us want to overeat, yet most of us still do. Mm. So that implies that there are these non-conscious parts of our brains that are influencing our food intake behaviors and that these brain circuits are driving us to overeat despite our best interest. Mm. And so these are those ancient circuits that we inherited from our hunter-gatherer ancestors that were beneficial in the context of their lives. Right. And so my book is all about what those circuits are and how they drive us to overeat. Fascinating. So what makes some foods so much more seductive than others? Yeah, I think this is a really great example of the non-conscious brain circuitry that drives us to overeat. Mm. So the brain is literally hardwired to be motivated by specific nutrients in food, specific chemicals in food. Right. So sensors in our mouth and our small intestine detect the chemical composition of the food that we eat. And these sensors are looking for specific things. They're looking for starch, fat, sugar, amino acids that are found in protein, glutamate, which is that meaty monosodium glutamate umami flavor, and salt. And some of those things are conscious. We can detect them on our tongues. Mm. Others are non-conscious and they're detected in our upper small intestine. But what they all do is when those signals are detected, when those chemicals are detected, they send a signal to the brain that releases dopamine in a part of the brain called the ventral striatum. And that's a key part of the brain that governs basic motivations. And the more concentrated these substances are in the food, the more dopamine gets released. Mm. And dopamine is a teaching signal for the brain that reinforces behavior. So when you eat foods that are concentrated sources of starch, fat, sugar, protein, and salt, your brain basically says, that was really awesome. Yeah. And then it learns to be motivated to seek those foods again in the future. And a lot of this learning process, by the time we're adults, this is well ingrained. We've eaten food so many times, so many different kinds of foods. Our food preferences are pretty well established. 
But in kids, that's not true. Kids are still learning their food preferences. And they can be modified in adults as well. We're just not quite as plastic in that regard. Being interested in this subject and having a three and a half year old boy, Desmond, it's amazing to watch a young person's experience around food. As soon as they have ice cream, and the first time they have it, they're like, oh, what's this? This is interesting. But pretty soon, that's all he wants to have. Mm. You know, he'll only eat other food so that he can have ice cream for dessert. Wow. And it's so powerful because they don't have the other parts of the brain develop. So he's not caring to look good swimsuit in the spring you know (laughs) all he wants is to eat ice cream only when he's hungry so it's been an amazing experience to first understand some of the neurocircuitry and then now to see it in action in a young child it's very powerful yeah that's amazing kids they have all the instinctive circuits but their cognitive control circuits are not so well developed so yeah that's amazing so it sounds like from what you were saying that it took him a couple times to really develop that strong motivation for it that's right interesting he learned over time that this provided a really pleasurable stimulus for him. And then that is now what motivates him to eat his dinner. You're constantly wagering with a small child who doesn't want to eat their vegetables and just wants to eat the really calorie-dense, palatable stuff. Yeah, that's an excellent example. It's exactly what I'm talking about. So your brain, it sets your motivation level. And in our everyday experience, what we end up with is cravings for things like ice cream, brownies, pizza, chips, and a variety of other tempting foods that we enjoy but aren't really helpful for some of our high-level goals of being lean and healthy. Yeah. And what we don't end up with are cravings for low-calorie and low-salt foods like plain celery sticks and plain raw kale. And this is exactly why most kids don't really like vegetables because the vegetables do not contain any of the stuff that the brain is instinctively looking for. Yeah. And so, like, the brain doesn't really care about riboflavin and magnesium (laughs) and calcium and all these things. We can't taste it in our mouth and we can't taste it in our intestines either. And this is speculation, but I think the reason why we can't taste those and they don't taste good to us is that those are things that if you were a hunter-gatherer, it was pretty much impossible to meet your calorie needs without meeting those other nutrient needs because the only thing you could eat for most hunter-gatherers was an omnivorous whole food diet. Right. So if you were able to meet your calorie needs and your protein needs, then you were pretty much good on the rest. And so we didn't really evolve right. to need to seek those things. So kids don't really see any value in vegetables until they've been repeatedly paired with fat and salt. And the brain has learned that those textures and flavors predict fat and salt. And then it's like, okay, yeah, I can deal with this. This is all right. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day about how Brussels sprouts have had such a resurgence that was everybody's least favorite vegetable when they were a kid Mm -hmm. because they were boiled and put on a plate and they were gross. And now they're fried in olive oil with salt and it's a common appetizer at a lot of restaurants and it's made them a lot more palatable by kind of combining the two. Same with lima beans. I don't know. Lima beans haven't had a resurgence, but they were part of the conversation as well. (laughs) They're the most gross food growing up. Yeah. I mean, there's no food that I really dislike, but I don't love lima beans or Brussels sprouts, (laughs) but I will say that, yeah, there are certain ways to cook them that make them a lot better for Brussels sprouts. And my wife's been helping me out with that. But it's interesting to think about the context because traditionally 
Brussels sprouts are considered a real delicacy mm. if you go back 100 years ago. And I think the reason is that Brussels sprouts, they produce in winter. Mm. They're one of the very few vegetables that actually matures in winter. And so it's this fresh vegetable at the time of year where there's no other fresh vegetables. Right. But I think now it's like you can get any vegetable anytime. So it's like, why would I care about Brussels sprouts? They taste mushy. But if that was the only vegetable available, it might have been pretty amazing. Yeah, totally. Many people find that they will overeat when they're stressed. So what is the role of stress in all this? Is another sort of modifier to like what types of food you're seeking and wanting? Yeah, I think this is another great example of a non-conscious brain system that affects our food intake. So surveys have been conducted in the United States, I think by the American Psychological Association, that show that just under half of people report overeating when they're stressed. And something like a third of people report that they skip meals. So it, it's very individual, but stress does have a very profound impact on eating behavior. So just to give some background on how that happens, the brain contains a threat response system. Mm -hmm. And this is a very, very deeply rooted system in many parts of the brain because our ancestors were constantly dealing with threatening situations that were literally life or death. Right. And so this is really, really deeply rooted in a lot of parts of the brain, and it can very profoundly change both behavior and physiology. And so the threat response system, like I said, it's in many parts of the brain, and I don't mean to oversimplify it, but a very important part of the brain for the threat response system is a location called the amygdala. Mm -hmm. And this is particularly important for stressors that are due to abstract concepts like the possibility of being laid off or psychological stressors or external threats, as opposed to having bleeding wound and your blood pressure is dropping. That engages different threat response circuits in the brainstem. Right. So what the amygdala does is basically constantly alert and scanning for possible threats. It's connected to a lot of different brain regions, and it's always on the lookout for different threats. Mm. And so some of these parts of the brain it's listening to are parts that process psychological stressors, like being stuck in traffic and getting in an argument with a loved one. And some of them are things that process more concrete external things like having a football coming toward your head and having to duck out of it really quick. Or, you know, you're trying to cross the street and you see a car coming out of the corner of your eye. These are the types of things that the amygdala is constantly scanning for. Yeah. And so when it identifies a threat, what it does is it activates a broad swath of stress responses in the brain and body. So it starts sending signals to a bunch of other parts of the brain that affect both your behavior and your physiology. And there are a lot of different elements to this, and I won't get into all of them, but one that I think is particularly relevant here is that your brain activates an arm of the threat response system that's called the HPA axis, the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis. Right. And I won't get into all the details of that, but the end product of that is cortisol, a hormone produced by the adrenal glands that sit on top of your kidneys. And interestingly, cortisol travels to the brain and seems to reduce the sensitivity of the brain to the hormone leptin. So as a reminder, leptin is the hormone that regulates body fatness. And when your sensitivity to that hormone goes down, your appetite and your body fatness go up. Mm -hmm. And so cortisol seems to dampen that signal. And this has been demonstrated by some interesting studies by Eric Ravison and others in both uh, rodents and in humans. Mm. And as it turns out, some people secrete a lot more cortisol than others. 
in response to the same stressor. And the people who secrete more cortisol are the same people who tend to overeat when they're stressed. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So those people tend to overeat when they're stressed, and they also tend to gain fat in the abdominal area when they're stressed. So cortisol not only causes you to eat more and gain fat, it specifically causes that fat to accumulate around your abdominal region, which is the most dangerous place to lose fat, or excuse me, to gain fat. Right. So that's one important reason why researchers think stress can precipitate overeating in some people. But there's another reason that's a little bit simpler, why we overeat when we're stressed, or at least why we eat less healthy food. And that's that certain types of food actually dampen the activity of the threat response system. Mm -hmm. And another way of saying this is very simple, is that comfort foods make us feel better when we're stressed. Right. It's like self-medication. Yeah, absolutely. Self-medication. And so when we feel stressed, although not everyone overeats, most people do shift their eating habits toward calorie-dense comfort foods. Mm -hmm. And these are generally tempting calorie-rich foods that are able to dampen the activity of that threat response system in the brain. Yeah. So animal experiments that were done by Yvonne Ulrich Lai and others suggest, interestingly, that comfort food is not the only thing that can do this. Mm. As a matter of fact, any type of reward can dampen the activity of the threat response system. Mm. And her research in rodents showed that that's particularly true for sex. Mm. So kind of interesting, like, (laughs) how do you give an animal, how do you give a rodent a reward, a natural reward that competes with food? Mm -hmm. There's really only one other one that competes with food, and that's sex. Right. And they showed that that helps dampen the activity of the threat response system. And I think that most people would intuitively agree that that's the case. One other comment around the overactivity of the amygdala and sleep. People that have PTSD, they have this overactive amygdala because of the experiences that they've been through. And sadly, that overactive response will activate vigilance centers in the brainstem and then at the same time cause areas of the prefrontal cortex to decrease in activity that helps us generate sleep. So you're you develop insomnia. Everybody that has been stressed at some point in their life recognizes that their sleep is usually affected negatively, which then worsens the physiological stress that the body's experiencing and promotes overeating. Yeah, absolutely. You probably know this well with your strong background in sleep, but one of the primary outputs of the threat response system is to increase alertness and vigilance via those same circuits that regulate our sleep-wake cycle. Makes a lot of sense. If you're under threat, you need to be alert. But if that alertness response is staying extra vigilant too much too often, that could be a problem. Mm -hmm. So we all live in this modern environment. Why do some people get fat while others don't? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. And I had to find a place in my book to discuss this because I think it's so important and also underappreciated. I think appreciation of this is growing, but it's Mm underappreciated. So there are a large number of studies that have been done on the genetics of body fatness. And what those studies show in aggregate is that differences in body fatness between people in society like the United States or Western Europe or other affluent nations, those differences are accounted for about 70% by genetics and about 30% by environment. So there's a very, very powerful influence of genetics on body fatness. And I think this meets typically with intuitive resistance from people. They say, well, if 
genetics are so important, then how come we're so much heavier than our ancestors were? Don't we carry the same genes that they did? And yes, that's absolutely correct. And I think this points to a very important feature or limitation of these genetic studies, and that is that they apply specifically to the environment in which the data come from. Mm -hmm. So basically, if you're looking at a relatively homogenous environment like the modern United States, you're going to find that genetic differences account for most of the differences in body weight. But if you were to compare two radically different environments like modern Americans to Hadza hunter-gatherers, I think you would find that genetics has very little explains very little of the difference. So the contribution of the environment depends on how different that environment is between individuals. Mm. The more different the environment is, the more it's going to contribute to body weight. So I think that offers hope because it shows that environment actually does have a very powerful effect. But to get that effect, to benefit from it, you need to move significantly outside of the mainstream diet and lifestyle environment in our culture. Right. And so to dig a little bit more into that genetic data, there are these large-scale so-called genome-wide association studies that try to figure out what are the specific genes that are contributing to these differences. And there's a lot that we still don't know. We haven't explained most of it. But from what we do know, most of the genes that we've identified relate to brain function. And many of them relate specifically to these brain circuits that I discuss at length in my book that regulate food intake and body weight. And so essentially, What it looks like is that the primary difference between people who are lean and people who are not is how the genetic blueprint of how their brains are put together, Mm -hmm. which is pretty interesting. And these genetic differences have been studied in, in greater detail than just their effects on body weight. And they've been shown to affect your appetite, your food preferences, your body composition, and they probably even affect your level of motivation to even care in the first place about diet and physical activity. So people say, well, is motivation involved? Is discipline involved in selecting your diet and in body weight and health? And I would say, yes, it's involved, but you have to remember that those things are genetically influenced too. Sure. So you can't really change your genetics, unfortunately, but what you can do is you can do the best you can with the genetics that you have. Right. You mentioned that your book goes into the different circuits in the brain. And if that's intimidating to anybody, don't let it be. Going through one little part at a time, It shows you one very clear way our eating is influenced. This is what's driving this way that I eat. And it's all very relatable. As you understand that mechanism, you can really easily see like, this is how I engage with food in this way. So there's lots of epiphanies and ahas reading it. Thanks. I appreciate that. I'm really glad to hear that because my goal was really to write a book that would be accessible to a general audience. And it's a tough line to walk between conveying science accurately and completely and making it understandable to people who haven't been obsessing over this stuff for 15 years. Right. So I'm glad to hear that. And I've heard similar things from other people, like my editor, who has no science background, found it understandable. So I feel pretty confident that most people are going to find it accessible. Even if you're not obese, and we have such an intimate relationship with food, I mean, what else are we putting into our body except for air multiple times a day for the rest of our life? Understanding some of these principles can help you make better food choices, period. 
if you are dealing with wanting to lose some weight, what can we do to manage our own weight in this world that is really driving us to be fatter almost from every angle? Yeah, so I think there are a number of things we can do, and I'll touch on just a a few of them today. But the overarching principle that I use to think about this is that our eating behavior is driven in large part by these non-conscious brain circuits that I've been referring to throughout our conversation. And these brain circuits are highly responsive to the cues they receive. So they generate your instinctive responses to food and your instinctive motivations to food in response to the cues that they're receiving, both from your surroundings, your environment, as well as internal cues that your digestive tract is receiving from the food that you're eating. And so if we want to manage our food intake and our body fatness in a constructive way, what makes the most sense from my perspective is to give those brain regions the right cues so that they are supporting your rational conscious goals of eating the right amount and being lean rather than fighting you and forcing you to exert willpower and cognitive control over these impulses that are leading you in the wrong direction. Right, right. And so here are a few tips for giving those brain regions the right cues. I think one of the absolute most important things, and this is something I try to hammer in a lot of the interviews I do, and that is controlling your food environment. So your ventral striatum, which is that motivational center that I was talking about earlier, and the things that it's connected to, too. It's not just the ventral striatum, but those things react to the cues that they receive. And so if you have previously eaten ice cream or pizza or whatever, you have this reward association where once you experience cues that are associated with those things, such as the sight of those foods or the smell of those foods or locations or situations where you've had them before, those cues trigger your motivation because your brain's basically saying, hey, I recognize this situation. This is the same situation I was in when I got a whole truckload of easily digestible calories last time. That was awesome. Yeah. Let's do that again. Yeah. Even though your conscious brain doesn't think it's a good idea, those instinctive circuits aren't wired like that. They're wired to want that. And so they trigger your cravings and your motivation. So the key here is to not expose yourself to those cues that are going to fire up your motivational circuits. And so especially things that are visible or within arm's reach and that are calorie dense and tempting. So like chips on the counter, cookies on the counter, soda, even foods that are very, very tempting, even if they're not visible, they can still kind of hijack those parts of your brain, such as if you have ice cream in the freezer or ice cream bars or something like that, just the knowledge that that's even there can cause you to crave those things. So if your brain isn't receiving those cues, not only is it just physically more difficult for you to get those things because they're not within close proximity of you, but you will actually crave them less. And over time, the less and less that you expose your brain to those foods, the more their power over you will dampen. So your brain kind of forgets or I think more accurately would be overwrites those associations over time and they have less power over you the less you eat them. So I think that's one way to do it that's helpful. 
I was thinking about the best dessert I ever had. Mm-hmm. And it's this place in San Francisco called Blue Plate. And they had a creme fraiche vanilla ice cream sundae with homemade chocolate fudge and slow roasted 24 hour strawberries with almond slivers. It was the best thing I've ever tasted in my life. Wow. And what effect did that have on you? A week later, I was thinking about how I could manipulate my wife. Okay, if we eat now at 11 o'clock, then by 4 p.m., when I suggest, what should we do for dinner tonight? Maybe we'll go back to Blue Plate that she would be receptive to it. (laughs) So I had strategized my entire day to try to have her say yes at the right time. And I became conscious of that. And I was like, this is really, really powerful. If you've ever had ice cream four nights in a row, its hold over you is never more powerful than that next night when you've reinforced that behavior night after night and you need it. You could be absolutely stuffed and you nearly need to have ice cream. If you don't eat it for a month, you don't think about it. Yeah, that's a great point and a great anecdote as well. I have an informal rule with myself about alcohol where... I generally don't drink it two nights in a row. Mm -hmm. And that's for the exact same reason. Because if I have it several nights in a row, then the night after I'll feel like if I don't have it, my evening just doesn't feel complete. That word association has just gotten stronger. But if I only have it every other night, then that doesn't really happen. I can take it or leave it. And that's a much more constructive and comfortable place to be in. Totally. I've had similar experiences and particularly with ice cream. I can still remember just like seared into my brain the most delicious ice cream ice cream bar I've ever had. Mm. And I got it at a convenience store. I was just like on a whim. I was with my (laughs) wife and we were checking out. I was like, hey, those look good. Let's have one of those. I must have been hungry or something because it was so good. And to this day, everything about that I remember the brand. I remember what it tasted like. I remember where I got it. I remember exactly where it was in the cooler. I don't remember that much about anything else in my life. (laughs) I can hardly remember a few teachers that I had in high school. And (laughs) I remember every detail about this ice cream bar that I ate once. Incredible. And it just shows you that non-conscious processing, how that experience fueled dopamine created that memory and it ain't going away. (laughs) So, all right, the more you eat these hyper palatable foods, the more they leave in this more indelible mark in your brain and that can reinforce behaviors that put us in a challenging position in terms of maintaining leanness. But at the same time, these sorts of pleasures are out there and it's hard for people to say, I'm not going to ever eat that again. What's your calculation of that balance? Yeah, that's a really tough question. And this is one that I've struggled with a lot. And we've both struggled with together on the ideal weight program. Like, how do you strike the right balance? Because we have real lives. You don't really want to tell somebody never eat. If you go over to your friend's house, you can't have a cookie or can't ever eat at a restaurant again. And I think it depends on the individual. Some people do a lot better kind of completely cutting things out. Some people can do moderation. But I guess for me, the most important way, again, is just to control your food environment and don't have those things around at all. And you'll be a lot less likely to eat them in general. And the less you eat them, the less power they will have over you over time. And so just kind of generally focusing your diet on simpler food, less highly palatable food and not having those temptations around, I think over time can guide people's habits in a more constructive direction. I found that replacing hyper palatable foods with stuff that's less palatable, more natural that I really like is actually easy. The focus isn't on not having something I like, but actually on having something I do like, and then that's satisfying. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Because I talk about this reward thing and the palatability thing a lot. And there has to be a balance. Most people, at least, those of us who are not monk-like, including myself, I can't eat totally bland, unsatisfying food forever. And even though that may have some benefits for weight regulation, it's not really sustainable. So how do you strike that balance? And I think a word that you used is very key here, and that is satisfying. You know, there are foods that are very satisfying, like simply prepared meats and pieces of fresh fruit and unsalted nuts, roasted nuts, things like that, that are very satisfying, but are not hyper palatable in that way that kind of hijack us into eating more calories than we need. It's so interesting to get into that loop, like with chips, where you just don't seem to have a bottom to your stomach. The old saying with Lay's, you just can't have one. But that's a really true (laughs) statement. And avoiding it altogether, I think, always feels better. I never feel good if I've gotten into that vicious cycle of I can't stop until the bag's done. Mm, Yeah. All right, let's see. So controlling your environment, making sure that the food that you have in your surroundings is stuff that's good for you and that you're also not having ready-to-eat palatable foods on the counter at any time because that's going to drive you to eat even if you don't want to. And then you're eating the right food. And then secondarily, healthy, satisfying whole foods that you enjoy, but they're not promoting overeating. And anything else? Yeah, so we touched on aspects of this, but I think eating whole foods that, as we said, are satisfying but not excessively palatable and not too calorie-dense... Mm-hmm. is very important. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One of them is just what we were talking about, the reward value and the palatability of those foods. But another one is these signals that are coming up from your digestive tract. And this is not something that we got into detail on here today. But when you ingest food, there are a lot of signals that are coming up from the digestive tract to the brain. And some of those are going to your ventral striatum and, and putting out dopamine. But there are also a lot of other signals that are going up to your brainstem and that are being integrated by your brainstem into a satiety signal. And so as you continue to eat food, the properties of that food, such as how much it's distending your stomach and its carbohydrate, fat, sugar, protein content, et cetera, are all being detected, sent up to your brainstem. It's collecting all that information and kind of, and these are really complicated circuits. There's a lot of stuff going on in there. But all you're aware of is whether or not you are motivated to eat more food. In other words, whether you're full or not. So that's kind of like the conscious output of this complex integration that's happening in your brainstem. And it turns out that certain food properties trigger that satiety response more than others per unit calorie. And so if you're eating whole unrefined foods that are lower in calorie density, you're going to get more satiety per calorie than if you're eating very calorie dense, refined and highly palatable foods. So I think that's another way to send slimming signals to the non-conscious circuits in your brain that regulate your calorie intake. Well, at this point, we would be remiss not to mention the Ideal Weight Program, which is the weight loss and weight maintenance program that we've put together. So do us a favor, tell us a little bit about what that program is. Yeah, sure. So I'm really excited. We're on the final stretch here of putting together a whole new version of it. It's going to be a huge upgrade. It's super exciting. So this is integrated with the HumanOS platform that Dan's been working on. That's really cool. And basically, it's going to be a course-based system now. The new one's going to be a course-based system. So there are a series of courses that are designed to educate users about six core determinants of eating behavior and body fatness and how to use those to your advantage. So basically, we've 
sifted through enormous amounts of scientific evidence and tried to really drill down on the core strategies that are going to be the most sustainable ways to regulate your weight. And so a lot of the ideas are similar to our previous version of the Ideal Weight Program, but they're just presented in a way that's a lot more engaging and a lot more thorough and a lot more clear. The whole course platform is meant to help people develop fluency on a subject. Can you discuss it with your friends? And the better you can speak to it, the better you can live it. The book and the program dovetail perfectly with each other because the book goes into more detail. It's more of a narrative around a lot of these different concepts. The courses drill down to the main points that help you implement it in your life. Together, you can develop skills that can last for the rest of your life that can keep you leaner, leaner. Well, Stefan, congratulations on this enormous undertaking it's a really great book. It's easy to read. It's fun to read. Every chapter has those epiphanies where you have those aha moments that help you see the world you live in slightly differently because now you understand the science around it. So I really do encourage everybody to go out, pick it up, and I appreciate your time today. Thanks very much, Dan. Good to be on the show. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.